Hello and welcome to Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue, the number one result on Google for Autonomous Cars podcasts. I'm Mark Hogue, a California licensed attorney, a 2X startup founder, a UCLA Bruin with a background in engineering and an economics degree, and twice a week we'll be discussing the products, tech, law, policy, and societal impacts of autonomous cars as they bring about the greatest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. Today, Friday, the 22nd of March, 2019, episode 91. Another very special episode today because I am pleased to introduce to you Blair LaCourt. He's the president of AI, where they're doing some pretty amazing things, effectively trying to bring human visual cortex type decision making to autonomous vehicles. But obviously it is Friday. So before we dive into this incredible 30 minute discussion with Blair, uh, it's important that we first of all do Friday poll day. Yay, I think this is like the second or third time this entire season that I've actually remembered to do it. In fact, just to make sure I didn't forget, I started the poll yesterday, Thursday. But anyway, it's a question I've been wondering for quite some time. And so I wanted to throw it out there to all of you. Um, and basically, I've phrased it like this. Do you think that the burgeoning autonomous vehicle revolution could make cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh the next Silicon Valley type mega hubs? in the coming decades. So your answer choices are absolutely, maybe, but on a smaller scale, not really, or not a chance. So um, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's just kind of a curious thing worth thinking about. Um, so do head on over to Autonomous Hogue on Twitter. Cast your vote. Of course, this Friday poll day will, as always, be up until Tuesday morning when our next episode goes live. So then, um, enough about that. Uh, I do want to get into the interview right away. Just a quick friendly reminder, obviously, if you're enjoying this show, do leave it five stars and a review on Apple iTunes. Don't forget to follow me on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. It's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I think that's all of them. Um, and oh yeah, if you didn't get a chance yet to watch my one-year anniversary Video review, it's a full 18, almost 19 minutes long on Tesla's Model 3 with Enhanced Autopilot. It's pretty fun. It's pretty ridiculous. Do check it out. It's on YouTube. Uh, just search for Autonomous Hogue and you'll find it. I'm thankful to all of those who've already subscribed to the channel. Please, those of you who haven't, do subscribe because as soon as I get to 100 subscribers, I can finally get my dedicated custom YouTube URL. Well, enough about that. Let's dive in and talk about Blair LaCourt because he's got an absolutely fascinating background. Um, he's served as global president of PRG, which is the world's largest live event technology and services company. He was the CEO of ExoJet, one of the fastest growing aviation companies in history, and they're the largest private charter company in North America. Uh, he's also been the operating partner at TPG, a premier private equity firm with over $91 billion in global investments, and he's held numerous executive and general management positions in private and public technology companies, including the likes of Vertical Net, Savvy Technologies, Autodesk, and Sun Microsystems. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Maine and holds an MBA from Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business, where he later served as an executive fellow at the Center for Digital Strategies. 
This is all very good and impressive, certainly. But what really struck me was that, oh, yeah, he's an astronaut. Yeah, so um, a funny thing happened. So as we were getting acquainted before the actual discussion kicked off and got underway, uh, you know, we were just kind of chatting a bit to get to know one another. And in the same sort of way in which you might say, oh, by the way, I went swimming yesterday. Oh, by the way, I had steak for dinner. In the course of various things Blair was sharing with me, was essentially, oh yeah, by the way, I'm an astronaut uh, for Virgin Galactic and I'm going to space next month. But seriously, it went past me so quickly that I didn't even have a chance to, to react, nor did I get a chance, unfortunately, to circle back. So Blair, uh, if and when you and I get a chance to talk again, I would love to know more about that because that's not just the sort of thing you can say, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to space and just sort of get away with it and that's the end of it. No, we got to have a proper discussion about it because that's pretty cool. And funny enough, it turns out that Blair and I are actually practically neighbors here in Marin County. Go figure, small world. Anyway, let's dive in, get comfortable, the next 30 minutes with Blair LaCourte, the president of AI, begins now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Three, two, one, and we're live-ish. <laughs> so Blair, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to have you with us on behalf of AI. Well, it's great to be on with a fellow Marinite. <laughs> so, so AI, I mean, obviously I've given it uh, a lot of read. It's really fascinating what you guys are up to. One of the key words that really stuck out for me anyway, uh, if only because of my weird fascination with all things aviation also, uh, is biomimicry. Uh, in aviation world, I've seen this term used a lot with respect to designing the the airfoils specifically for aircraft like the A380, uh, I believe the 787 as well. Um, and then learning what you guys are on about with respect to kind of merging LIDAR and camera vision to more effectively, well, mimic nature's greatest invention, arguably, the eyeball. Um, this sounds pretty swell. So um, love to hear it from the top, kind of a background, kind of high level, and we can dive in with some juicy details. Sure. You know, and, and I, you know, I as well was actually drawn to the company because of the approach. I mean, I think that uh, the great thing about Silicon Valley is that you're able to actually solve or at least try to solve the same problem from a lot of different angles. And I invested in AI um, originally, uh, having come from defense, intelligence and aerospace and having seen a lot of commonality in what their approach was. So asking a different question, maybe coming up with a different solution to a problem that other people are trying to solve. And the question that, that Louis, the founder of the company, had posed to me when I came in was, hey, I know that you've worked a lot in sensors, but really I'm not here to build sensors. I'm here to mimic human perception. And if we can't get a system to function more effectively than the human visual cortex, then we're never going to actually break what he called the density latency um, barrier, kind of like the mm -hmm. sound barrier in, uh, in, in sensors, which is how do I get 
enough more information than the human eye, but do it faster than the human eye. So that particular problem actually resonated with me. Having come from um, military and intelligence background in the past, when you build um, ISR systems or you build automated targeting systems, that's always where you mm-hmm. start. You know, how much density versus how much latency are you willing to, uh, to tolerate? So in other words, I, the two I are think obviously that inversely related generally. That's, that's the point, right? Generally, they're inversely right. related. Um, and in fact, there is a very simple paradigm we would always use, which was there's three factors that you're going to play. One is how do you collect data? The second is um, how much time do you have? And the third is how much power can you apply to it? And, you know, humans intuitively uh, believe that they can collect a lot of data in a short period of time if they use Moore's law and they continue to drive power through the system. And that tends to not be a complete solution when you're in movement. And so that really was what drew me into the company was this idea of density versus latency and how the fact that in the world of autonomous cars, applying more power sometimes doesn't solve the problem. And by the way, it's, it creates another problem because they're electronic vehicles and therefore you're drawing down range. So very, very unique kind of way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, I mean, sort of as an aside then, I mean, this seems to kind of mesh pretty well of Elon's claim that, you know, if you get things right and if you follow it to its logical conclusion, of course, um, even just camera vision on its own, even in the absence of any sort of LIDAR, that eventually it should be at least as good as, if not better than human eyes. Um, so I guess two-part question, A, do you kind of agree with that argument or, and B, or I should say, or B, um, would you say that, uh, that this kind of, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna call it a hybrid solution, my understanding, the kind of merging of LIDAR and camera vision that you guys are doing, is that sort of a stepping stone? Will there be a time where really camera vision will be sufficient on its own? Yeah, and, and actually, it's a it's a question. Uh, you know, we're, I'm an investor and in, uh, an astronaut with uh, Virgin Galactic, so we spent a lot of time with SpaceX, and we spent a lot of time with Hyperloop, and I, I've been able to have these conversations. And what I would say, you know, understanding where Elon is coming from, I believe half of what he's saying. Um, I question the second half, but I also understand the the pragmatism um, within the context of what he's saying. And let me explain mm-hmm. that. I do believe that um, always searching for the next best expensive methodology um, in some ways is counterproductive to taking a simple technology well-known and improving it, um, you know, and, and using Moore's law to do that. That I, I believe in. And, you know, computer vision has come a long way. Um, computer vision is trying to solve the three-dimensional problem through mathematical formula, Right not trying to solve it through a technology. They're trying to layer mathematical formula. Where I don't actually agree with him is that I don't think that there's a battle between computer vision and LIDAR. Um, when you add them together, there's an exponential increase in information quality and density. And so if your issue is that LIDAR out of the box is too expensive, that doesn't um, take away the argument that if you merge 2D and 3D, that biomimics the way humans um, do it, and that the way to bring down the cost is to do it intelligently. The reason I say there's a pragmatic context to, to what Alon would say is that, look, he's in the business of building cars, and um, you can only add so much cost to an individual user's mm-hmm. car, mm-hmm. right, before it becomes untenable. The average car is used 4 to 6% of the time. Even if you could, excuse the pun, drive someone 
to use their car 10% of the time, you're still not going to justify a 20 or $30,000 um, addition to the car to make it autonomous. So by sticking with cameras, which are fairly cheap and adding more cameras in, it may, you know, he's taking the bet that I don't have an option to add that much cost today anyway. So why um, get people's um, focus on that? And I think that's probably the right thing if I was selling end user cars. Now, if you're going to be enabling assets like cars and you're going to be using them in a B2B context where you're offering a service, either transportation or logistics, and I can take a car from 4% utilization to 94% utilization, and especially with EVs, which have uh, lower moving parts, then yes, it does make sense to maybe merge a new technology into an old technology and see if you can make one plus one equal 10. So I think there's a bit of, bit of pragmatism in where he's coming from um, in his statute. And I do believe that he will tell you as soon as you show me a solution that works, I'll integrate it tomorrow. Interesting. Makes sense. Well, so speaking about cars, so and diving a bit deeper into the practical, just if, if still a bit high level sort of real value here to what you guys are building. I mean, there's this issue of, well, latency, obviously. And the, the promise here is that well, for a car, you kind of don't want any latency at all. That's generally a bad thing um, insofar as processing the world around the car. And, and so here are the idea is that you guys can basically do this all in real time, right? So, so is, the, is, the, is the main point here that it's, um, it is both in real time and the fact that it's also more accurate? Or is there a bit of a trade-off or is it all of the above? Yeah, and, you know, again, you know, to use a colloquialism, you know, you know I don't want to ruin the show, but they're, they're – um, if kids are listening, there really isn't a Santa Claus. Fair okay, there are, there, there are physics. And the reality is that, you know, you make trade-offs in everything you yep. want to do. So rather than look at latency as a zero-sum game, you have to look at latency where latency right. matters. Okay, so if I take you back to the analogy, if I, if I use two analogies, one would be, you know, I used to, to, to run a GIS company, right? And so we um, did a lot of things around uh, spatial interrogation, right? And it was back in the old days because I'm old, right? Back in the early 90s before Google Maps came out, we started doing we were the largest you know, mapping organization. And so we added intelligence into it. And so we had great spatial. And as you moved through that map or looked through that map, we would have added intelligence so you would be able to see things as you move through it. Um, and that's one way to do it. It's hub processing. I brought in the spatial I added intelligence, and then I made decisions on that. Um, fast forward to what uh, we did later on. We did automated targeting systems to protect our troops. How do you defend against a missile? Well, you have to have spatial, but you also have to be able to not only see something in a scene, determine whether it's a threat, and then very, very quickly for just the things that are threats, analyze, acquire, and make a decision on what you want to do with that. That's a very different model than a hub processing model and requires by nature to function much more like a human visual cortex, which means that I can spatially interrogate, but all things aren't equal. The girl in front of me is important, more important than the sky behind me. And when I really need to foveate and put attention on something, I can actually update faster and get more scans of something um, in a shorter distance than I would looking at something like the leaves on the tree, which I just want to make sure I know where the tree is. It's not moving. And so uh, what I would tell you is that it's, it's applying intelligence to how you spatially and temporally scan. And that's where you break the, the, the density latency uh, barrier is 
if you look at automated targeting systems that we've developed for the last 20 years, that's what they're good at. The challenge is they're fixed uh, systems um, on assets, but they actually cost a tremendous amount of money. And so one of our challenges was to take the stand on the, the shoulder of giants, take the learnings uh, from both GIS and from automated targeting systems and try to apply them to autonomous driving. Hmm, I see. No, that makes sense. Um, so with respect to, uh, let's see, range, I suppose. So one of the things I read was that you guys are basically targeting a one kilometer range. I mean, my assumption of how this is possible, just bearing in mind, obviously this is far further than anything just pure LIDAR can do, is the idea that once you're you know, beyond the range of ordinary LIDAR capability, then it's going to be relying more on just camera vision. So to your point a moment ago, I mean, you're, you're basically picking and choosing what you want to focus on, which is the real differentiator here. So to use a weird analogy, I realize it's a bit off the wall, but one of the analogies that's coming to mind is, and I think I used this same analogy the other day with something else, is uh, MPEG compression, right? It's only looking at whatever has changed. In other words, it's updating that which is uh, different, right, from frame to frame. Is this kind of the same idea? Is this how you're able to achieve such a far range? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and you know, actually, that's a it's a great insight. But I would step back. I think the initial premise of yours, I'd flip a little bit, but the, and then let me get back down to. I think your analogy is is an apt one. So the the reality is, if you're going to biomimic a human, a humans actually see in two D and three right. D simultaneously. It's one of the reasons that Elon believed that cameras can actually see in three D is because what humans use is parallax to be able to figure out how to you know see an object in the short field and get it in three dimensions. As you move in the long field, humans actually use a special trick, which is they figure out if something looks smaller, then it must be further right. away. Now that's how they, that's how we trick you in fun houses, mm-hmm. right? We start to mix up the brain by actually putting things in, in different sizes at different angles. Okay. So like, just like a human who can see in 2d to a certain distance with a certain density, um, you start to, you, you, it's very difficult to get depth over a, over a certain period. That's why LIDAR adds value. A camera is much better at contrast in daylight. It's much better at, um, you know, seeing things and classifying things, but it has you know, more difficulty in certain situations when it's dark or when it has distance. So what we say is that, look, if you could take a pixel of a camera, which is a passive sensor, it sends out a signal. And it brings back a reflection of that signal. And you could put it with a LIDAR system, a laser voxel. You call it a dynamic voxel. You'd be able to, at any point in that scene, see 2D and 3D. Now, that by itself is, is you know, a positive. You're getting both types of uh, 2D and 3D at the same point. But the problem is, is that when you actually sense out to something like a certain range, you're actually hitting every pixel and every voxel at the same power. Um, and so you're spreading it out over the whole right. scene. So you can do that, but you will then be limited in, in your LIDAR system to a certain range. Whether you use a flash LIDAR or a raster LIDAR or a spinning yeah. LIDAR, 
every single point of that scene. So the distance that you're that you're able to see is actually a function of how much power you have um, and how much receive uh, bandwidth that you have. So it is very passive. What we did is we biomimic the human visual cortex. So first, the human visual cortex can, if it wants to, see in 2D and 3D at any point. The second thing a human visual cortex can do is it doesn't necessarily have to do it at every point in the scene. So if I decide that in front of me, I want to see further, and on the sides, I want to pull back the power and in my periphery vision, either update less often or see at a smaller distance, I'm able to intelligently collect data. Here's where your analogy comes in. If I give you that opportunity to set a pattern that isn't fixed pattern, like every other LiDAR and camera in the world, you will able, you're able to start with a basic search pattern. At a moment in time, and they're, they're developing this in cameras and, we, and we've developed it in LiDAR, you will have cues on when you may decide that something's more important than another. The basic human instinct is when I see something move and I see that it's large, I will actually foveate on it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you come back into this. You look for event-driven changes. So do you see a blob that's moving? Do you see a new object that's entered the scene? But all of it is still wrapped up in intelligence. And the only way you get intelligence is to have situational awareness. And the only way to act on intelligence is to have a system that's not passive. So today, all of the systems on cars, the cameras are passive, and the LiDAR systems are passive, which means they only search. So every LiDAR system you see in the world is like a 1950 robot. It either goes back and forth with a red beam or many red beams, or it spins around with beams, or it flashes out with beams, which means that at every moment in time, it's, it's pinging the environment at the same density and the same power, whether I'm on a highway or in a city, whether there's a girl in the road, whether it's raining. So they, we have optimized around what we'll call a search paradigm that we will get as much data as we can in search, we will bring it to the trunk, and then the, we will, the computer will decide in that search algorithm whether to, to have another system take an action. Our paradigm, much like automated targeting systems, is you need to be able to intelligently search so to the point that you use extra power once you've found something to what we'll call acquire an object and decide whether it matters or doesn't matter. Acquire it and classify it. And then you're going to decide in the back of the car whether you're just going to track it, whether you're going to act on it, hit the brakes, or whether you're going to keep interrogating it to get more information. And so when you take those two paradigms together, humans intelligently search their environment and they can search, acquire, and, and act or track in a single frame. That's why a human can drive at 80 miles an hour today and an autonomous car can drive at 25 miles an hour. That's where we're having the problem. Right, got it. So, okay, so the difference is between having sort of a uniform sort of radial blanket of typical LiDAR today, which is passive, versus the ability to focus. So I get that, but just sort of as an aside, and man, I feel like I could like spiral off in all sorts of tangential questions. This is pretty fascinating discussion. Um, but, but to be super clear, I mean, if you look at standard LiDAR today, right, isn't it the case that the issue is it has to be power limited, right? So even if a standard passive LiDAR today, say a 905 nanometer, were focused a very narrow field of view, um, you, you still wouldn't be able to go further than a rather limited range, right? Because the power output to do so would fry everything, especially retinas, right? So 
right, look, so you're you're a very educated user. What I, what I would say up front is that, um, and, and just a you know as a premise, look, I don't think that there. I think that there's multiple types of cameras, whether it's a thermal camera or a low light CMOS camera, that can be effective in certain use cases. And I think that there's um, several wavelengths that can be used. But what you're pointing out is that there are inherent uh, limitations. Um, given the wavelength that you would use to what a use case uh, that you could actually um, apply to a car, right? And so with 905, because it's a dangerous frequency, because it actually can burn out your retina, you're correct. You can't actually modulate or amplify the power beyond a certain limit. So in the 905 world, the only way to get longer distance is to have a better receiver. Hmm, And some of the greatest minds in the world are working on how to, you know, get better receivers so that 905 can see longer distances. I see. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily optimized for that. Um, but th- because 905 is in a silicon band, the theory is that because silicon is cheaper, I can afford to spend right. more on the right. receiver. Um, at the end of the day, there's a thing for the technical listeners they have out there called a link budget. At a certain point, there's diminishing returns, right? You can't, actually, you know, to get more distance, it's costing you more than, um, say, a 15.50 in in-gas than it would be a 905. And so you, you, you lose the cost benefit. And why wouldn't you go to a more sophisticated wavelength? So the first question you always ask yourself is, it's, you know, or first premise that, that most people are, are coming to is, it better be solid state. And if I can get to a 15.50, which is just a, a longer yep. frequency, mm-hmm. I have more capability to be intelligent. Right. And, that, and that's kind of the premise. That doesn't mean that 905s are not useful or won't be used in a lot of different things. What it means is there's less degrees of freedom and intelligence. The argument would be, does not does 1550 cost more in our world? You know, coming from where we came from, we don't believe it does. And that's part of our selling premise mm-hmm. is that we can give you you know, more intelligence and it won't, won't cost you more. Plus, we can hit those peak performance things. When we set the world record for LIDAR, we didn't do it because we believe that everyone should do one kilometer scans. We did it to show that if you decided on the front of your car, you wanted a one kilometer scan on the sides, you wanted less, I can optimize the front scanner to give you more distance. When we went to set the world record in speed to 100 hertz, we didn't do it because I think you should scan at 100 hertz in every situation. The point was, if you saw an object that was that was close to you and you needed to classify it quickly at 230 meters at 10% reflectivity. The reason that most car makers are asking for that kind of distance is because when you're functioning at hundred millihertz temporally, the speed you mm-hmm. scan that you need at least a couple of scans and the car's moving 20 feet between sure. scans. So you need to see it further out. If I can scan at hundred Hertz, even if I saw the poor woman on the bicycle that the Uber driver hit, I would have been able to scan her five, seven right, times. There's no way I would have missed it. It would not be a false positive because I would have been able to scan faster. So the point being, you should have the capability to decide whether you want more distance, you want more speed, or you want more density. I want to hit it more right, times. And the point is you guys can and dynamically so, pick which one of those three. It's like pick two out of the three, right? <laughs> that's, that's exactly yeah. right. And by the way, if you can do it quickly – you're really not picking two out of three. You're picking at two out of three for one frame. Good point. Yeah. Um, and then you can, you, can, you can revert back to it at the end. So I, I would say that, you know, for the technical guy, uh, guys and girls out there, look, this is not a new concept. 
The question is, as I brought up earlier, how do you collect information? Do you do it passively and do you do it all or do you do it intelligently and you actually bring back information for just data? The average autonomous car throws out 90% of the data yep. it collects, yep. right? So if I could collect information more effectively, and again, there's examples of really smart people like Mobileye who did that for photographs. They put a chip right behind a camera and they don't transfer back all the data. They pre-process mm -hmm. it. That's our concept. Our concept is that there will be lead sensors on cars that have to function more like humans. By the way, there will be other sensors on cars that can, that can act like a computer, just go, just do density over and over and over again and not get bored. We think that, you know, there will be a hybrid system. Now in the human biomimicry, the way that you actually do the, the basic stuff, I touch something hot, it goes directly to my spinal cord and I pull away. That's, irrelevant to say a lower end scanner that has automatic braking. I'm going to hit something. I don't need to know what it is. I need to stop. Mm, but point. in the higher end intelligence situations, you're going to need something that replicates a visual cortex, which does 70% of the processing at the edge, not in the brain. And 40% is, is actually triggered by secondary trigger senses, such as I smell something. I'm going to look for a pie. I hear a sound like a siren. I'm going to pull to the side. So again, I, I think that what we're trying to say is that there will be passive, um, simple sensors, and they'll be extremely effective. There will also be sensors that uh, biomimic, and that we believe we can bring the cost of those um, down below what people had ever expected, because we're using human intelligence perception to do that. Got it. Well, so how about this? In in the if only to honor the thirty minute uh, time frame, I promised you, uh, we've got about five or six minutes to go. I suppose um, I had a, three kind of unrelated questions I wanted to bounce off you real quick. You actually almost segued into one of them already. The Uber crash last year, right? My understanding, and I've it's been brought to my attention. I might be a bit off on this. Was not so much that she and her bicycle were not detected, but rather that they were perhaps miscategorized as, for example, uh, a plastic bag blowing in the wind. Uh, my question, whether or not that's even true, my question here is, is, is this notion of what's obviously better visualization capability, is that necessarily, um, I guess, coinciding with also improved comprehension? In other words, would this necessarily have also, at least presumably, helped avoid that sort of collision? Will it necessarily be better at distinguishing as between say a person or a plastic bag in the wind. Right. Well, look, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. And rather than get into the specifics, because, you know, we could abstract it to a right. higher level, which is you search, you acquire targets and you make a decision on what to do with the target that you found. Right. If you believe that the systems that existed on the car at the at point in time, were search-based systems. One of the arguments that the radar maker made is if you hadn't turned off the radar, I wouldn't have known what it was, but I would have known it's mm -hmm. something. Very simple, right? It's a binary. Yeah. There's something there or there's not something there. So yes, there were, the radar system was disconnected because it wasn't part of the system mm -hmm. that they were, they were, uh, that they were testing. Now the secondary, when you say, did it think it was a plastic bag or did it think it was a bike? I would abstract that from search to acquisition did it know what it was? Right. And so what, what, you know, most of the people believe after, you know, reading the, the high level reports is look, 
it spun around and it said, I think I see something, but I'm not sure. Is it a false positive? And do I actually then take a make a decision to disengage? Right. And it wanted to get more information is the theory. And it went back around in an intelligence system um, like ours. You, it, it was dark, so the camera couldn't help. But we would have not waited 100 milliseconds to determine mm, whether we made a mistake. Mm. Because our LIDAR system is not on a fixed pattern, it would have probably hit the object another 50, 60, 70 times. And we would have said, we're right, it's nothing, or it's, um, we're not right, and we should actually engage. That's the difference between, am I just searching, or do I have the capability, once I see something, to determine whether I can acquire that target. Again, much more like a system designed for an automated targeting system. Like we often say, look, if you look at motion, if you look at uh, cars, it's about motion planning. Where do I drive? The same automated targeting system could be used in security by say, I want to find things that are moving, right? The same thing can be used in mapping for localization. It's the same stuff. When you're software definable, which is what our hardware is, we optimize for whether it's motion planning or it's motion detection or it's motion localization. Um, but we do it by having the software go through that sequence of I'm searching, I'm also acquiring, I'm also making, I'm sending decisions back to the, the thing that really runs the car. These cars are run by very sophisticated path planning systems and perception systems. Our systems just bring information. At the end of the day, someone's got to make a decision on what you want to do with that information. Got it. That makes sense. All right. Well, look, in the last couple of minutes here, if I may, um, sort of off point, but I, I, I just, I'd be a bit remiss not to ask this question. There's a lot of discussion here, obviously about the minimization of latency. Obviously it's a big issue. There's a lot of question, a lot of discussion folks have asked uh, with respect to 5g. Is this just a bunch of marketing hyperbole or is there going to be, you know, is this more of a need to have or nice to have insofar as really an autonomous future? Look, you guys I, are doing everything on car, obviously. Personal. Right. Well, this is this is my personal opinion. And again, you know, I, I qualified a, a couple of times. Look, at the end of the day, this is a system problem. And it ultimately is a mesh network problem because these will be tech enabled assets that are moving and that they if they could talk to each other or talk to infrastructure, the, the network will become smarter. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the short run, 5G isn't the issue. The issue of latency today is the issue around uh, is around basic path planning. If you can't, if you need to wait 100 milliseconds um, to actually make a decision, then by definition, you can't make decisions fast enough to go on highways heading towards each other, yeah, right? You, you, need, you need to actually have faster decision making. I think the only way to solve that problem, which is not mutually exclusive of 5G networks adding tremendous value, is that you have to do some of the processing at the edge of the network, which means in the sensor, which right. is very similar to, again, what Mobileye did with backup mm -hmm. cameras. They put an ASIC right at the sensor. So you were getting information back, not data back. I think the paradigm that personally I have not seen work is the batch processing in the trunk for two reasons. One is it adds latency. The second is the way we're trying to get rid of latency is to add more power. And all that power is actually bringing down the range of the car and it's, it's a losing battle because a lot of, I had a question the other day where someone said, look, it's not that much distance. Why would you add that much latency? Because you're not just transferring bits and bytes. You're having to organize them and relate them and fuse them in 4D fusion. So we believe that 
for every every bit of information that's processed in the sensor, you can save 10 times the power in the system. So you start to look at that and you say to yourself, yes, that's why humans do it that way. Because if humans didn't process in the visual cortex, they would not be able to move. They would have a very, very difficult time moving at speed. <laughs> that's a really good point. And again, that's, I mean, right? that's the challenge between what we can end where we started, which is I believe that you have to make a decision. Do you intelligently collect data and process at the edge of the network? Do you apply a lot of power to it and say Moore's laws will solve all? Um, or do you, can you afford to spend some more time and you don't need it done? There are certain situations where you have to intelligently collect data because no matter how much power and how much time you have, you can't make the decisions while you're moving. Sure. And so we think there'll be intelligent sensors. Um, and we believe that the system will be integrated, which is why we don't fight against cameras. We actually love cameras. A camera can give us, give the lighter information, lighter can give the camera information. And when you ask me why people have such a hard time with that, they don't in the military, right? And they don't in intelligence. I think the reason that people have such a hard time saying I have to pick a winner between a camera and a LiDAR system is because a lot of people grew up with, you know, thinking about or have a PhD in a subject that they want to optimize. But I do believe that this is going to be a system problem. So it will not be a single mode. It will be a multi-mode problem. And I'm making the bet that the two modes I need the most are to be able to see in 2D and 3D. And I love radar because it will actually help me focus that 2D and 3D. And I love the, you know, the IMU because it will be able to tell me things about what's happening in the car. So I believe there'll be a lot of sensors on a car. I just believe the data that you'll want to collect is either a 2D or a 3D image um, that gets you to acquisition and, and action or traction. So there's my, there's my theory. Well, this is awesome, Blair. Thanks very much. Uh, so I guess to close it out then, got to ask, so when, when do you guys kind of sit back, smile and say, okay, we did it. We've reached our goal. How far away are we? You know, I think the industry will sit back and smile in the next two to three years. I think ADAS is accelerating tremendously uh, because, you know, a lot of the work in mobility is, is being scaled down into ADAS. I think mobility, complete open loop, I think you're going to start to see the mobility on demand. Some of the, the closed loop implementations of mobility are already starting to gain traction. I think it's, you know, it's, it's three to five years, but I don't think it's that the technology isn't ready. Remember, in order to tech enable an asset, you have to actually buy the asset. And most of the models for mobility today, um, in full disclosure, I'm an investor in both Uber and Lyft. Most of, most of those models today are based on not having to own an asset. And so when you have to own an asset that's tech enabled, you get great gain, but it's a different type of business. There's tremendous capital investment. So I think over the next, yeah, maybe two to three years, you're going to see both the technology and the business models converge to where you're going to, you're going to see a big change in the market. I, it's very difficult for me to smile on any given day because there's so many smart people working on this problem that every day I run to see what someone has invented and figure out whether I can, I can use it or whether it's an opportunity or it's a threat. But I think if you, if you really see, uh, I've seen this trend before in the internet, a lot of money went in and then the basic infrastructure was built to the point where everyone can innovate on top of it. I think you saw this with cell phones. I think what you're going to see with, and I'll, I'll end with this. I, my bet is what you're going to, you're going to look back 10 years from now for autonomous cars is realize 
it had something to do with logistics, but it had more to do with taking transportation down to less than a dollar a mile, which looks an awful lot like building a network that you can build other businesses on top of and changing the dynamics of how innovation gets done. I think ultimately the real innovations on top of autonomous cars will be in how businesses work, right? It's, it's the, yes, the car will drive itself and there'll be benefits, but the car driving itself for less than a dollar a mile basically makes logistics equal zero. And I think that every business, just like that was affected by smartphones and the internet will be affected by the fact that cars are so effective and efficient. So that's my, we'll come back 10 years from now and we'll, we'll take a look back. <laughs> well, sounds good, Blair. Well, look, thank you very much. It's been fantastic. It's really exciting what you guys are up to and uh, wish you all the best and hope to talk again soon. Thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you. It was a great Likewise, talk. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that's a wrap for today and indeed for this week. Blair, thanks again so much for your time. It's been a real privilege having you on the show. To everyone listening, thank you so much indeed. Have a wonderful weekend. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.